Lab talk with Laura. Listen, I implore ya. Won't never bore ya. Lab talk with Laura. Always more in store ya. Lab talk with Laura. <clears throat> okay, welcome to this third episode of Lab Talk with Laura. I'm your host, Laura Fatteruso. Today we're joined by guest co-host Carrie Glauner, who is a local comic and also a master's student in the geoscience department at UMass Amherst. Thank you for joining us today, Carrie. Yeah, you're welcome. Good to be here. And for our guests, uh, we're joined by Ben Padilla, who is a second year PhD student in the Department of Environmental Con Conservation here at UMass. Ben was first introduced to ecological research as an undergrad at Gordon College, a small Christian college in Wenham, Massachusetts. He then went on to get a Master's of Science at Ohio State University, where he studied urban bird ecology. He then worked as an AmeriCorps volunteer doing urban environmental education in Lawrence, Mass, and lived in Washington, D.C. for a year working uh, uh, at the FDA. After that, he enrolled in the Teach 180 program here at UMass, where he earned a Master's of Education while teaching ninth grade environmental science in Springfield, before then returning to UMass to pursue a PhD in the Environmental Conservation Department. He currently studies ecological response to land use change by humans in the Pioneer Valley. Thank you for joining us, Ben. Yeah, good to be here. Um, and our other guest today is Emily Redman, who is an assistant professor of the history of science here at UMass. Um, she was an undergrad major in physics at Drew University. Uh, Emily spent two years teaching high school physics and general science before beginning a graduate program in the history of science at UC Berkeley. She's held two different positions at the Department of Energy, once as a physicist and later as a historian. She is currently finishing a book project on the cultural and political history of K-12 math education in the United States titled The Math Mafia, how a persistent group of reformers standardized American education. Ooh. Thank you for joining us, Emily. Thank you for having me. Okay, I think we're going to start with Ben. Um, so, Ben, could you just first off tell me about your research? Yeah, so uh, urbanization is just uh, going crazy around the world. We've got more and more people uh, all over the world, and uh, urban, urban centers, urban sprawl is getting bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger, and it's only going to continue that way. Um, especially in some of the most biodiverse areas of the world, like in the uh, sub-Saharan Africa and in Latin America and in the Asian tropics. And so uh, it's really important for us as ecologists to figure out how that uh, urbanization and that human impact is, is um, having changes in the ecosystems and how the ecosystems are responding to those changes uh, to the landscape and how we can better plan for developing sustainable cities that are not only ecologically sustainable, but also sustainable in terms of uh, the human ecosystem as well. So um, a city that is both uh, beneficial to the local ecosystems and to the people that live there. So you've been doing research in the Pioneer Valley specifically since you started your PhD? Yeah, so um, that's kind of like the big, the big picture like background behind what my work is but maybe we'll start out with um start this off by asking you guys some questions so um if you guys if i were to ask uh each of you what 
What is urban? I was going to ask you that question, so I'm just going to cross that off. <laughs> well, I live in Amherst, so I think of Northampton as urban. <laughs> All right, so we got Northampton. <laughs> I, I grew up in um, northern New Jersey, so um, I tend to think of urban as being like lots of pavement. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so impervious surface. In lots, lots of impervious lots surface, of it, yes. Like all of it. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, impervious surfaces was what I was going to go with as well, as well as, I don't know, is there a certain population density that has to be in place? Yeah, I would say so. So. Lack of green space. There's, there's a lot of variation even just in our responses among three people here. I mean, you saying Northampton is urban is very different from someone from North Jersey. What what you pictured in your mind when you thought of urban was probably not Northampton. It was not. I I have to say that I sometimes roll my eyes about um, how people think that Northampton is the Paris of the Pioneer Valley. (laughs) (laughs) I somewhat jokingly said that because my friends come up from New York City and they walk around Northampton and they go, ah, the country. (laughs) And I'm like, ah, yes, the country with a restaurant every three feet. (laughs) And and before I get angry emails, I love Northampton, but it's also, I, I question whether or not it's urban exactly, but... It's almost like I like I seeded you with that response because that's kind of exactly what I was looking for. Um, in that the way that people define what is urban is drastically different in different uh, areas of research. And so that makes it really hard to uh, come to like a broad understanding of ecological response to urbanization. If you are doing some research and you're saying, well, my urban site still had like so much diversity or this or that, and you're you're researching Northampton, and you are researching Camden, like th- those are not correlates with each other. So uh, my work really focuses on coming up with a, a systematic approach to actually quantifying landscape change mm. um, using uh, land use maps and some statistical techniques to pull uh, the features out of the landscape at a large scale. Um, and then have that as like a sort of a standardized method of of measuring urbanization that can be used as a background map that all this urban ecology research can sort of be laid upon. So um, that's what the the big goal of my research uh, in my PhD is really in developing that method and proving that method out. Uh, so then my field work is here in the Pioneer Valley um, and is looking at validating the map at the local scale validating my method at the local scale so we actually do have a i mean springfield is a is a pretty large city and the springfield uh the sprawl surrounding springfield the chicopee holyoke westfield and then as you continue down uh ludlow east long meadow um and then coming north from there we come through you know northampton's got it's a it's a little bit for the pioneer valley yeah it's it's a little town. It's a town. And then Greenfield, uh, um, Turner's Falls, up at the north end. And on top of that, we have a lot of agriculture, which is impacting uh, wildlife and ecosystems, but in a different way. Uh, but it's also human-dominated systems. And as cities grow, agriculture grows. So it's important to understand how these two types of human-dominated landscapes differentially influence ecosystems. So um, that's what uh, my work is on here, sort of working on how we can come to an agreement on what is urban and what isn't urban 
and how that can be used in uh, research in ecology. I had a question, and that was, so we all talked about what we thought urbanization was as, you know, U.S. citizens who've grown up here, and so we think of pavement and that, you know, and cement and that type of um, infrastructure. Uh, but what about in developing countries where the population density is huge, but they might not have the same type of infrastructure? Is your system taking that into account as well, or is it more like a, I don't know, first world country is the right term anymore, developed country? Yeah, so uh, the way that that uh, my method quantifies urbanization is is based off of uh, remote sense data. So we've got all these satellites flying around up in space that are measuring all kinds of things. And uh, we've developed this tremendous resource of, um, of spatial data, geospatial data, uh, that's in many cases freely available online. So um, most, there are some, uh, some of those data available for the developing world, for Sub-Saharan Africa, for example, for portions of Latin America, and uh, but the resolution and the um, accuracy of those data is, um, it's it's still an ongoing, it's a work in progress. Mm -hmm. um, so, I am not sure, the I'm not sure exactly how it would turn out, how my approach would turn out there, um, because I mean. In any, uh, no matter what, any map that that you look at is a, um, it's a representation of reality. It's not actually accurate ever. Right. No map is is true or, or <coughs> perfect. Um, so even here in Massachusetts, where we have really good data, like you can get uh, one meter resolution data of the entire United States. Um, like ev each pixel on this map is only one meter squared, um, and that's really good. But as soon as that those those images are taken, they're out of date, right? Things could mm. have changed. Um, so eventually, the the method could be implemented anywhere where uh, land use maps, land use cover um, maps exist. But the efficacy of it might it depends totally on the accuracy of those maps. It's a good question though, because that's really important. And that's kind of how I framed it at the start, was that this is really important for us to understand to help these, to help uh, develop sustainable cities in where they are developing at the fastest rate. Mm. Mm. So uh, fingers crossed on that one. <laughs> <laughs> Have you tried to find uh, yourself in any of those high resolution maps? <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's a good question. I should look. <laughs> I mean, I'd have, like, you could I, be everywhere. Yeah. Well, I, I've seen like the like the Google Google Street View car driving around a couple times. Mm -hmm. You guys have probably seen it, mm -hmm. and then it's like you try to like drive next to it. And <laughs> one time, my uh, my little brother texted me um, that he was like, "Ah, the Google Street View car is right next to me," and it was like on a text with some of my other brothers. One of my other brothers was like, "Ah, duck, or else you're gonna be in the picture." He was like <laughs> freaking out. I I missed that. I mean, I lived in the Bay Area, and so. We had all of the um, sort of experimental Google stuff happening all mm. the time, and it was you know always driving past our house, so it was updated like weekly. It felt like, uh, but no more. But. <laughs> so I've started out with just sort of a really big review of the literature, 
in urban ecology to just be like, hey, there's still no consensus, mm -hmm. but I've pulled out from that these similarities on which I built my method. And so then the next, uh, the next step is for me to go out with a talk of like, okay, so this is, and a paper, really, um, like this is the method and um, a brief example of its efficacy. And the one of the ways that I'm trying, because uh, numerous people have done that for landscape quantification and things like that, um, but their methods are really hard. Uh, so that's one of the big barriers to one of the to something being implemented. So mm -hmm. like if I'm an ecologist that wants to study the responses of I don't know like squirrels to urbanization, right? Like do squirrels in cities eat more out of trash cans than squirrels that don't live in the cities? Um that's my question. And so like I don't really care about like quantifying urbanization. I just want to know about if squirrels are eating out of trash cans or not. So I'm not going to go through this laborious really difficult process to like look at the color spectra in a lidar map blah 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 boring stuff that no one cares about um i want to do something that's easy or already exists so that's also where um i and my advisor because uh, he's better at the whole like computer programming thing <laughs> are turning this into a package in the statistical program r mm hopefully, uh, so then it would be really easy to just be like, point this function to where your, uh, where in your computer your land use maps are sitting or where on the web they're sitting and it will automatically go through that whole process. Um, so that's the biggest way, in t other than the general ways of, of communicating science out to other scientists of papers and talks, trying to uh, package it as a really easily and accessible R function. Which sounds like, too, that um, of course it would be available to everyone, but it might be particularly useful to early career scientists who wouldn't have the time or inclination or resources to be able to spend a year working with these more difficult programs. Yeah, yeah. And also, just for those that are uh, not interested in the because the reason part of another reason why there's so much variability in what is urban and how people end up measuring it is because that's sort of an afterthought mm -hmm. it's like oh i'm really interested in like protecting this species in these different landscapes oh yeah but that means i need to s figure out some way to measure it and then mm -hmm. it, it's that's an afterthought or or a step along the way and if that large hurdle most people have just kind of been like going around this big mountain mm -hmm. so if we can just like i don't know put a tunnel through it or whatever then uh it will be it'll be easier and it will be uh, used more more readily and then people can use this program with that publicly available data from the satellites mm -hmm. i just wanted to bring up that right now in the political climate, there's this question of why are we pointing satellites at the Earth, <laughs> 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 and why is NASA what we NASA should care about outer space, not not our own planet. And so I just want to highlight that this is research that without NASA pointing satellites at our Earth, it wouldn't even be possible. But it's totally. really important, obviously. Yeah. I'd like uh, to go back to the squirrels eating out of the trash can <laughs> for a second. Yeah. Um, so Laura and I are both geoscientists, uh -huh. and the joke is like, all we care about is rocks. Right. So is there a joke like that for the ecological sciences? Like all you guys care about is squirrels and trash cans or like 
No. (laughs) But uh, we should probably come up with one. That's your job, right? You're the resident uh, comedian. I guess I did did have a question about that. So I'm, uh, I'm not much into things that are alive as a as an earth scientist you know i'm more interested in the earth's moving parts than the things that move on top of it um but so so like most people i learn almost everything about nature from uh david attenborough documentaries yeah. well and, little do you know but so do i well yes right, <laughs> i understand so so this question i have is that in planet earth 2 there's a really great episode about cities, and I'm sure you've seen it like a thousand I times. Yeah. Oh, you have to see it. See, it's so I, I cool. I bought Planet Earth 2 on yeah. like a digital version of it on Amazon Prime Day because it was like week cheap. But I haven't watched through it all yet. You have to if, watch. If the you need cities. to leave early to go watch yeah. it, that's fine. Yeah. We all. It's important. It. I mean, I don't. I feel like that's you're kind of falling out of the line of duty here I, if you're not watching <laughs> that. But it's it's really interesting. I don't want to spoil it for you. But there are these turtles that, um, you know, everyone, I feel like, has grown up on the same story of the turtles hatching and then making their way down to the ocean and by moonlight. Oh, and then I they thought you were going to talk about Ninja Turtles. Oh, no. <laughs> I mean, well, kind, so here's Born the thing. Born in Northampton, FYI. Yeah. <laughs> Wait, just need to Ninja Turtles? Yeah. Well, yeah, that's like the least surprising <laughs> thing I've ever heard. That's why Northampton counts as a major city. Because wow. the population ninja density of Ninja Turtles, a hundred percent. That's pretty great. Sorry ninja Turtles that. were a very important part of my childhood. Well, obviously that goes without saying. <laughs> Sorry, but so, continue. No, the okay. David Attenborough's turtles. So well, so these turtles, um, you know, they they hatch and then they go down uh, the beach in the moonlight, and they use the moon to. Um, bouncing off of the ocean and that light to direct them how to get to the ocean, but the city behind them is much brighter. And so they actually are ending up turning around and going into the city, and there are all these shots of all, like, tons of baby turtles just covered, you know, the road is just covered in them, and, and they're, like, falling into drain pipes and everything. And that's sad, but also... Those are the dumb turtles. The smart turtles are the ones that make it to the ocean. So I have a question, which is that, do you think that urbanization is going to have any long-term impacts on, like, I don't know, selection? Oh, it it does. Yeah. It it absolutely does. And we already see that. Mm -hmm. And so uh, we see that in a number of ways. Um, One of the uh, most... Uh, most well-studied ways is with birds. So, um, like crows. cities are well, uh, songbirds specifically. Oh, okay. So cities are loud, right? And there's always like, especially in in large ur- urban areas or urban sprawl, there's kind of like a background hum that we just sort of drown out or we don't really hear. Uh, but you know, like all the all the car, the mix, the background drone of all the cars and the people and the blah, 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 and this and that and all this stuff, right? And so there's kind of this low frequency hum going on. And uh, birds, songbirds especially, they hear better than we do, especially within the frequencies that they sing. And um, so there's been a lot of research that has been recording birds in urban areas and in non-urban areas and birds are shifting the frequencies of their songs in urban areas significantly. Um, and what, because in, in a lot of cases, bird, or in pretty much all cases, bird song is a signal to, to get the girls and to like fend off, fend, defend your territory. And so um, 
uh, m more fit males, so fitness in an evolutionary context of, of um, producing more offspring, um, are shifting their songs in urban areas. So they're evolving as we, as we speak right now. They're evolving. And same thing with uh, bird bill shape, because in places with a lot of people, what do we do with birds? Because we like them. We feed them. We feed them. Skittles and stuff. Yeah, Skittles <laughs> and all kinds of random things, right? In a lot of cases, they're really hard things. And mm. so uh, some finches, I just recently saw a paper looking at um, some bill morphology in some finches that was actually um, beginning to have slight shifts uh, or moving changes in urban areas um, in the, m the shape and the structure of the bill uh, to crunch these larger seeds. So yeah, I mean, um, oh, and coyotes. Like coyotes are literally everywhere, everywhere. Like in the biggest cities in the world, there are coyotes. Um, and they've evolved to uh, shift towards an entirely um, Nocturnal. They've they've changed uh, to um, their diet and all kinds of behavioral things to to really adapt really well to urban areas. It's pretty neat. Did you hear about there was like last year a pack of coyotes walking through Chicopee in the middle of the day? Oh, I totally believe it. I didn't hear that, but I totally <laughs> yeah, believe that is it. Really there were like cool. a dozen coyotes just strolling around Chicopee. Were they wearing leather jackets? Checking out uh, the Walmart. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I just, I think it would be, you know, we were talking about the you know, people arguing, well, why do you need to point satellites at the earth? And it's like, well, if the animals are evolving, why does it matter, right? Um, but I think the answer is obvious, and that is if they evolve too much, they're going to win over the humans, right? <laughs> I mean, we're going to have, like, super birds and super turtles and cool. stuff like that, right? Okay, I'm go, moving on. I'm, I'm okay with super turtles. <laughs> <laughs> We've established. <laughs> <laughs> Um, ben, you had you you did field work in Costa Rica for your masters or for your undergrad? Yeah, that was just in undergrad. Oh. I um, I did a semester abroad there, and it was uh, all about tropical ecology, and I was able to do some some research as well. Okay, so that was that outside that wasn't urban ecology. That was before you got into that. Yeah, that wasn't specifically urban, no. But it was still um, on the how our influence, human influence on the landscape. I studied. Um, so I studied bats, which was really cool. Oh, cool. Um, so little do most people know, but in the tropics, in the neotropics especially, there are all these bats that do basically hummingbird jobs, but at night. Hmm. Uh, they're nectar-feeding bats. and um, They keep old ladies entertained? Yeah, <laughs> the old ladies that are up at night <laughs> <laughs> sitting in the rainforest. They are very entertained. Um, but these bats, they're, um, they have like little leaf noses and long tongues with all these hairs so that they can stick their long tongues in the flowers and, and drink nectar. And they go to hummingbird feeders. Uh, because Costa Rica also and the um, American neotropics have like so many hummingbird species like here we have one but down there there are like dozens and they're amazing so there are these big hummingbird gardens especially in places where tourists come to see the rainforest right and so these nectar feeding bats go to the hummingbird feeders and um, there are certain flowers in the rainforest that only can be pollinated by bats Right, and so if all the bats are going to hummingbird gardens in a certain area, where are they not going? 
to their flowers. And so they're not doing their pollinator job. So that's what I tried to study in my like uh, three month long undergrad research project in Costa Rica is that I caught bats in two different places. And I went out, I literally just took scotch tape and patted their backs. Uh, and that got the pollen because the pollen gets dust all over their fur. They're these adorable little bats and they're like coated in yellow pollen and just like patted them with scotch tape and then <laughs> stuck it on a microscope slide. And then I caught bats in two different places, one that had a lot of hummingbird feeders, one that didn't really have uh, many. I, I couldn't go to a place with none, otherwise I wouldn't have caught any bats. Um, and then I went back into a lab and I looked at the pollen slides under a microscope and counted the grains. Was that influential in your decision to continue with science? Yeah, um, it definitely was. It like um, that was a, just an amazing experience. Like I spent I spent a semester in Costa Rica. We went on two. Our like home base was in the um, this small town called Monteverde, up in the mountains at this research station. And then we went on two two to three week long field trips where we like we're just get in this bus and drive to another part of the country and like spend a couple days there learn about that ecosystem we um hiked into the center of one of the largest patches of old growth rainforest that exists in costa rica like the center of it so like the only way to get to this little research station is to hike in like 20 kilometers and we did that and spent four days in a place with like no electricity and just like th things like that that just I it's a, I think back on the fact that I even did them and I'm like what that's crazy <laughs> and so yeah it definitely did just like make me even more fascinated and um, even more fascinated than I already was yeah I'd like to um, sort of conclude our interview, but not before I bring up that um, one of the things that you said you're passionate um, about is the intersection of religion and science because you're religious. Um, do you want to talk about that a little bit, your experience with that? Yeah. So um, as someone who's grown up in the church, uh, there's a lot of um, pushback, I would say, from people in the church uh, towards science. There's a lot of perceived tension and then there's a lot of similar perceived tension from people in science towards people of faith and uh like i definitely experienced that a lot growing up um you know with people in the church saying oh you shouldn't evolution you shouldn't believe in evolution and then i started reading books about like in science i'm like wait but this makes like a lot of sense and so I've spent a lot of time uh, working through that from all kinds of directions, right? And reading people um, on all ends of the spectrum. And uh, I've really come to this point where I think it's really important for this perceived dichotomy and perceived tension to really just go away because it's not helping anything. And um, so... I do a lot of thinking and some writing and some teaching and I, I'm increasingly trying to uh, to be a voice in this conversation to as as a 
uh, uh, man of faith in the sciences um, to be uh, among my science peers, a person of faith that is doing uh, high quality research, that my faith doesn't um, impede my ability to do research, but rather it improves my, the way I do my science personally. I think it does. Uh, I think that my faith um, just gives me more of the wonder and curiosity to pursue my science. Um, and then similarly, uh, as, a, as a Christian, that um, we see a different side of God as when we look at the natural world. He's given us the natural world to see uh, his creation is reflecting uh, him as the creator. Uh, there needs to be more conversation between the two ends of the spectrum, and, and I hope that I can facilitate that. Yeah, I agree that that's really important. I've been learning, uh, I'm taking a public engagement class right now, and I've been learning about the way that issues that are divisive in science, like climate change, for example, or evolution, um, that people feel like their identity is attached yeah. to their belief around those issues. And so yeah. it's not so much about whether or not they believe the science, but that they feel alienated from their identity if they agree with the science. And that's really totally. something we need to combat. I think that, you know, in the science world, that's not getting anybody anywhere. Mm -hmm. We need to acknowledge and accept that we all, we have a diverse group of people in our society and that we all benefit from science and that, yeah, there shouldn't be that conflict, even though it's it's unfortunate that there is. So I think that's really important work. I yeah, I I'm, was really excited to hear you talk about this too. Um, so I'm a scientist and I'm a comedian, which are both things that I've felt at odds with my faith. Uh, I'm recently a Christian in the last year or so, and um, as I'm sure many people who have like come to faith know, that's kind of like the most intense part of it is when you first start out and like have the the connection that you've never had before and so I was really excited about um, discovering God and I um, I was also terrified because I had been I was in this department full of geologists and I had yeah. no idea I was I was so scared to tell anyone about it um, uh, but luckily I'm an extrovert and I just can't keep my mouth shut and so I ended <laughs> up telling people and I was surprised to learn that we have faculty and students who go to church who um, are religious in many different ways um, and so I do think you know we do need to have more conversations because there it is more of a perceived boundary Absolutely. than it is a concrete boundary and, and so I think it's really awesome that you're trying to bring that to um, more of a public arena I think that's great yeah, yeah, um, and I'm glad that you that you said that because it definitely is. There are people, the majority of people uh, on both sides of the aisle, we'll say, and I'm using air quotes right now. Um, there, the majority of people don't don't experience much of that tension on a day to day basis, but the people that do like to tell everyone that they yeah. do. And they're really vocal about it. And we've got people uh, mm -hmm. like Richard Dawkins um, and on one end of the spectrum, and then people like um, uh, Ken Ham, uh, who famously had that, that debate with Bill Nye mm -hmm. a couple of years ago about evolution and creation. Um, both of them are on, on two ends of the spectrum, and they are very vocal. and. Uh, 
they're just increasing the the perception of that dichotomy and making people that are <laughs> more moderate in their views um, feel like they need to be quiet or that mm -hmm. <laughs> they're afraid to speak up. Uh, um, so it's really great that you uh, have a community of people in your department that are um, on board with that. I think I, I also might be slightly biased here, but um, I think that's one of the great important things about history of science that, I mean, in my classes, I refuse to let people say science versus religion. Yeah. That, that's, that's just not historically accurate. That of course you have some examples, right, where you, you might be able to sort of most appropriately say science versus religion. But um, I mean, for instance, just on um, Wednesday, in my big survey class, we were talking about Galileo. And, mm -hmm. you know, Galileo is popularly remembered, right, as being like the scientist who stood up to religion. And man, the story is so much more complicated yeah. than that. Um, and But I have been so struck with sort of how difficult it is, particularly in a survey class type of environment, because these ideas are so entrenched mm -hmm. that mm -hmm. the 45 minutes that I can spend talking about this is often not enough to really sort of change minds enough. Um, so that is a, a topic that I really continue to, to push throughout the entire class, that there's no real reason to think that there is this inherent uh, divide uh, or dichotomy, right, between science and religion that, in fact, a lot of our historical understanding have been people trying yeah. to bridge that gap. Um, I, should, I shouldn't even be using those terms, right, because uh, that, that then sort of implies that there is this inherent gap. <laughs> yeah. but, uh, but often, you know, scientists are working with faith and they're yeah. working with um, traditional theology and not just to, you know, save appearances, but because this is an important aspect of how they're thinking about the world and yeah. that needs to be preserved in our understanding of the development of scientific thought. Mm. You're listening to Lab Talk with Laura on 91.1 FM WMUA Amherst. I'm your host Laura Federuso and today we're joined by Ben Padilla from the Environmental Conservation Department at UMass Amherst, Dr. Emily Redman who is a assistant professor at the History of Science and co-host and local comic Carrie Glauner, who is also a master's student in the geoscience department where I reside. Getting back into it. Okay, so now we're going to talk to Dr. Emily Redman, who's uh, a professor in, an assistant professor in the history of science uh, here at UMass Amherst. So, Emily, why don't you just tell us about your research and the book that you have coming out? Sure. So, um, I work on the political and cultural history of um, K through 12 math education in the U.S., mostly in the 20th century up to the present. Um, and that's um, what I, I have been working on, and that's the, the book manuscript that I am um, currently, it's under review, um, so working on finishing up those sort of last uh, pieces of that. Um, and it's kind of interesting that a lot of the topics that we were just sort of covering with Ben um, are um, applicable to what I am working on. So I'm really interested in these questions, as Ben said, of like, why do we think the things that we do? Um, so some of the questions that sort of led me to this research project were, why do we as a culture um, put so much primacy on STEM, right? So on various science, technology, engineering, and math. Um, why is it that, um, you know, you will 
you probably have all had this um, experience as undergrads. I was an undergrad physics major and had this experience of people would say like, oh, you're a physics major, you must be so smart. And that always struck me like, why, right? <laughs> like, thank you first, but also like, you know, I can't write poetry if you put a gun to my head. Like, I mean, there are all sorts of things that I can't do that very smart people do. Um, but that's not the way we like talk about poets, right? That's not the way that we talk about lots of different other disciplines. Um, and that was always just so fascinating to me. So that's that's one of the things that I'm interested in um, is why is it that we think that everyone should have really good math education, that it's important that they do well on standardized tests? Why do we think that this is going to be important for the future of our nation? Um, but saying that, I, I think it is. I mean, I think that math education is an important thing. I, I believe strongly in math literacy, but I also take sort of a critical eye with the, the um, blind assumption that, for instance, how our sixth graders do on standardized tests will tell us something about how our economy is going to act for the next 20 years. Mm. Uh, but people make these sort of one-to-one -one correlations all the time. Um, so really, I'm, I'm interested in how people talk about math education and its importance, um, and then how that has um, kind of played out in terms of policy and how we've seen changes in the classroom and changes to various um, like curricular reforms over time. And so while we treat these things as really important, we also treat them as really inaccessible, right? Right. And so I feel like at an early age, a lot of people are pushed away from science and math because yes. they feel like they've inherently maybe they did bad on a standardized test and they think that means something about their future right as a scientist or yeah and, yeah and that's another thing that um also from a very early age i was interested in that um you know it's it's sort of culturally allowed to say things like oh i'm bad at math i'm not a math person but it's not really culturally allowed to be like oh, i'm like really bad at reading <laughs> right that's, yeah, that's not something that you're sort of allowed to say um, at the same level as as you can with math um, and a lot of this comes from i mean there are all sorts of reasons Re read my book um, mm -hmm. <laughs> but but yeah i mean i think that there are all sorts of reasons why we we sort of come to this but i argue as a historian that these aren't inherent truths right that we are constructing this culturally and, and at times politically as well, um, and and making this what becomes a truth, right? That now it, now it is acceptable in, in lots of various ways to sort of brand yourself as not being good at math, and, and we accept that in, in all sorts of different ways. But it's not that I think that there's anything um, sort of real about having a, a math brain or not. It's how we think about teaching it, how we think about supporting people who like or don't like math. Um, so I'm curious what you think about uh, the NGSS that just recently came out a couple years ago. Um, in terms of, like, so the next generation science standards are really built around uh, framing STEM education through uh, inquiry-based learning and integrating it as much as possible with uh, with other curricula mm -hmm. um, and making making those stem disciplines more accessible through making them more real because I mean I can just think back to my the my chief complaint with math homework was this is dumb I'm never gonna use this and crumple up my paper mm -hmm. so um, yeah so like you're granted you're not you're not an education reformer and that's not what you're trying to do but just in terms of the trajectory of the history, since you've traced it up to now, um, 
curious what you think about that. Um, I have a f many answers to that. Um, so, for one, for the most part, all of these reforms are um, aimed at public schools, yeah. right? So that makes right. sense, right? So, um, I think that then when you just sort of recognize the the first part of that is that there's just no way to create even a broad curriculum that is going to work for every single student, yeah. K through 12, in every single public school yeah. in the entire country. It's just not going to happen. I mean, that was your complaint about math. I like loved doing like the problem sets. I mean, they didn't call them that in sixth grade, obviously, but I just loved doing that. I didn't care if it had anything to do with actual reality. <laughs> like these questions of like, if a bee flies between two, um, train cars I was like interesting what if a bee did do that like I mean yeah. it's a totally useless question right but I thought this was really fascinating um, and that just I, I think underscores this fact that you just don't know what's going to get yeah. students interested um, on the flip side of that I think that people often when they sort of hear me talk about what I do think that I'm going to be very cynical about all of these reforms because I also talk a lot about this almost like cyclical nature that we have mm -hmm. these times in our history that we think oh my gosh you know STEM education math education is in crisis and you know the whole country is going to crumble because um, our students are not learning STEM and then we have these major moments of reform and everyone is optimistic and then lo and behold it doesn't fix everything immediately and then soon enough we have another crisis yeah. and that Sure, you could be cynical about that. I actually am not. Um, I think at some level it's a really good thing that we have really smart people who continue to think a lot and care a lot and work to make changes in our classroom that I think that's a really wonderful thing. What we don't want to do is have all these smart people sit back and say, like, it's a lost cause. There's no way that we could ever fix math education. We can't help all students all the time, so let's just give up. That's that's not what I want. So I actually sort of think that as we continue to have just more and more research in cognitive science, more and more research in math education, I mean, there, there's a lot of really wonderful also scientific work that's being mm -hmm. done in like how kids' brains learn yeah. things that are being translated into the math classroom. And actually, interestingly enough, the math classroom has historically been where a lot of this research um, gets played out practically um, because although we're, we're understanding more that math has sort of a cultural component, it's not value neutral, um, often it's a good sort of first place to um, apply cognitive science research because it is a bit more objective than other subjects, right? So it's more easily quantifiable in a lot of senses. I am so interested in everything that you are saying as um, as a woman in STEM. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, it was really interesting listening to you uh, introduce your work because I had a really knee-jerk reaction. Um, and I'm wondering if anyone else did um, when you said, well, why do we, you know, why do we think it's so important? I'm like, well, it is, you right. know, just it is important, <laughs> duh. You know? um, because that obviously has been stressed to me, and, mm -hmm. and um, I am someone who never had a math brain. And um, coming into grad school, a lot of what I've enjoyed has been 
you know, discovering math and discovering how it is, you know, the language of science and how um, you can, you know, just see a whole new beauty in the world just by looking at things mathematically. Um, and I think, I don't know, we were talking before the show about how history is about creating a narrative. Um, and it, it seems like that is what is missing a lot, or at least in my mm -hmm. opinion, from math education is there's no narrative, there's no context. Um, and that can be really difficult, mm -hmm. I think, for students to grasp if you don't have, um, if you don't have a bigger picture in mind, then the the simplicity of math can be really boring. It's like penmanship, right? You know? and <laughs> I, I mean, I think that part of the problem, though, is that it it again gets to this point of that you you can't make a curriculum that's going to work for all students. So right. it's, I mean, you're mentioning this, and I. Um, often will tell my students sort of the, the story of when I um, first sort of realized how much I loved math and science. Um, and it was in just the first week or so of my high school physics class. And we learned the equation for a ball rolling down an inclined plane. So I mean really like first week type of stuff. And I still remember the moment that I was like, wait, every time a ball rolls down an inclined mm -hmm. plane every single time. It's just this simple equation and the exact same thing happens every single time and like my mind was blown. Mm -hmm. But I also tell this to my students because I'm like, how many of you think that's amazing? And like two of them raised their hands, <laughs> right? So this was this moment that like kind of changed my life. And this was a narrative that I was sort of creating that this is no longer just a, an equation that I'm memorizing. This is something that suddenly I was like, whoa, the whole world works like this. That's so wild to me. But very few people care. Right. <laughs> right? So this this was a narrative that was so important to me. So then how do you decide when you're writing textbooks? Mm -hmm. How do you decide yeah. when you're writing a, a year long curriculum? Right. That it's it's just it's impossible, so. I agree, I don't know, I think like one of the things that I feel like is lacking in math education is the history side of it, which is really interesting. Like I remember I had a similar epiphany when I learned that like calculus was invented so mm -hmm. that we could have physics, basically, because mm -hmm. there was no good math for describing the way things move in the world, and that they just invented calculus, not they, Newton, <laughs> <laughs> invented calculus. That's a contentious thing to say, actually. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there's, there's still, I don't know, do you know about this history of the, Oh, yeah. yeah, of course you yeah. do, sorry. I mean, yeah, we, we can I, just, should, I should, I need to mention Leibniz yeah, also. Yeah, shout out to him calculus. They both, <laughs> they both did it separately at the same time. Which is very common, right, in science? It's, it's fairly common, yeah. Um, even, I mean, I think one of the interesting things about that sort of moment is that Newton is one of the few people that um, you can make an argument for how much he worked independently, and, and very few people are like that. There's usually just such a network story, and Newton certainly had his networks, don't get me wrong, but um, he was he was an intellectual loner in a lot of ways, too. Um, so usually you can't just have like the one the one figure that you sort of look at as being you know this lone genius and Newton you you still need to you know put him in context but he spent a lot of time alone in the library too. <laughs> so. Well, didn't he? 
didn't he invent it and then not share it with people because he was like nobody gets me <laughs> I don't know I, I have this concept of him as this like angsty Quietly overly beating. intellectual jerk and so like then Live Needs invented it too and he was like hey everybody look at this and then Newton was like oh no I already did that like 10 years ago <laughs> and nobody they were like yeah sure I don't know if that's accurate to the history I mean it's Glossing over a few things. Okay. <laughs> it's, it's not. It's not the worst glossing over. So. It just made me picture some like really brooding emo sad music from Newton. Like he wrote a whole album about that. About how he didn't get his calculus idea out there in time. Yeah, some good good phase for him artistically. Yeah, it is. It's good. His unreleased album. Yeah, <laughs> yeah to be discovered. I think so often in you know, middle school and high school science, not that it's, I mean, I, I love my classes. I think that there's lots of area for people to be intellectually curious, but for a lot of people, it's index cards and you memorize mm. things, right? Yeah. And that's, that's not what science actually is. So that's one of the reasons why I also love to teach these history of science classes, especially the survey, um, because most of my students end up being science students usually. Um, and to sort of be able to say like, Hang on, this is not a science class. Like this is a this is a history class, and we're not going to actually like. I might show you formulas, but you are not to memorize any of them, right? Do um, they all like scribble? Like yes. get so excited and scribble <laughs> down furiously? Yeah, I mean it's it on the, board. the survey class is so interesting because I will have a number of science students who are trying to fulfill uh, requirements, which is exactly what I did. Like, and I I warn some of the more enthusiastic ones that. You know, you might end up being a historian of science because that's how I became a historian <laughs> of science, too. Um, and then there are students who, you know, are taking this for other gen ed reasons that are absolutely terrified of science. So it's just, like, interesting. I have, you know, a bunch of students have never taken history before. They really don't know anything about historical methodology. And then students who are like, whoa, 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 what do you mean I'm learning science the entire time? And it's, I mean, it's one of my goals to make students sort of rethink this idea that there's so much memorization that it's um, that the scientific method is like very methodical right that actually there's a lot of conversation there's a lot of fighting there's a lot of drama there's a lot of wrong turns right I mean like that's an important part of the history of science is all of these like geniuses that you see in the sidebar in your textbook in ninth grade actually spent 20 years pursuing some things that absolutely didn't work right and that's an important part of that that process too um so what, what are some really funny things that didn't work oh my gosh there are so many of them i mean the um this might be something that i'm telling that you already know but i think that the, the sort of um most common example in history of science of um unexpected results is the Michelson-Morley experiment. So, okay. Um, so <laughs> We're all shaking our heads. Yeah. No, Good. we don't know what you're talking Good. about. Yeah. <laughs> so um, this is, I mean, f for ages, right, people understood that light travels through the universe. Like, we can see this coming from the sun, from the stars. Obviously, like, this is happening, right? Um, and it would need to travel through something because it's a wave. So if you think about just an ocean wave, right, like the wave travels through water, that's the medium that it travels through. And if you think about things like radio waves, it travels through the air, you need to have the air for that to work. So why wouldn't light be the same way? Because light acts like a wave, right? So everyone just assumed that there's this thing called the ether mm. out there. And that's just what's in the universe that's filling the universe. 
And at some level, as scientists, you might be like, yeah, but what's the proof? At another level, why would you ever assume that there's just literally nothing there? That's like very hard to wrap your head around anyway, this idea mm. of like a vacuum. Mm -hmm. Like you can know that as an intellectual, but like try to really think about that. It's, it's kind of impossible to even imagine that there's actually nothing there. So anyway, people just believed that there was this ether. Um, and it was just thought that they couldn't detect it because they didn't have good enough equipment. What did they think it was made out of, or did they not know? That, I mean, people had all sorts of different theories about it, but it was just a thing. It was a medium out there. Um, so basically, as our technology um, improved, it became possible to make sort of better and better um, uh, measurements. And Michelson and Morley, who are working in Ohio, um, put up put together this um, experiment, and I am not going to get into the details of all of this, but they were basically sort of looking at um, the ways in which you would see um, light travel differently based on the movement of the Earth. So like if light was traveling like with the movement of the Earth or against the movement of the Earth, you would see a different velocity. And they found nothing. And they were like, well, okay, we clearly need to fix our experimental procedure, right? Um, and so they sort of kept on working on this and were really frustrated. And as it turned out, this is the sort of most famous null result that they were fighting it because they didn't even have the hypothesis that it was possible that there wouldn't be an ether. This just wasn't something that anyone really thought. And it took quite a long time for them and other scientists to accept, no, what they're demonstrating is that there's no ether, that light is moving through nothing. So it's this wave that moves through no medium, hmm. which is one of sort of the first um, really weird things that physicists have to grapple with in the 20th century. And if you know then anything about the rest of 20th century physics, it gets weirder and weirder <laughs> and weirder. <laughs> um, but so that's, I mean, that's, that's a sort of good example of, um, of, of a result that is both unexpected and sort of challenges hmm. um, uh, deep thought about um, about science. When was that? Um, the exact date is early about. early twentieth century. Okay. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Okay, so we're ready to move on to the last part of the show. Um, normally, we play a game that I invented called GTA. Guess that acronym. <laughs> um, but because uh, because it's Black History Month, I thought we would switch it up and do a little bit of a quiz about black scientists. Maybe we should have Ben and Carrie guess before Emily because well, I think that's fair because that she has an advantage. I don't know. Guess that acronym. That sounds like uh, I lived in D.C. for a little while, and that sounds like whenever you meet someone at a bar and they tell you where they work. It's <laughs> <laughs> that's the game. Oh, that's like the, the intro. The, game. I work at the GFALU. It, that is true. I've lived in D.C. too, and that really is true. <laughs> Okay, we'll have to do, if I had known that you guys both lived in D.C., maybe I would have done a D.C. Acronym, acronym game. Yeah, government acronyms. <laughs> um, okay, so our first question. Guess who this is? So, originally from Great Barrington, Massachusetts, he was the first African-American to earn a Ph.D. from Harvard. He was a sociologist, historian, civil rights activist, and author who co-founded the NAACP, he was a professor of history and economics at Atlanta University, where he published the first ever sociologic studies of African-American life. W.E.B. Dubois. 
Correct. I think it's Du Bois. Du Bois. Yes. Who our our library here at UMass is also named after. Mm -hmm. Okay. So next, a little bit more challenging. Wait, I get a point. You got a point? Yeah, Ben's got a point here. I'm not Because he raised his hand first. (laughs) Although we we kind of like, uh, we... Gave a disadvantage to Emily by telling her to no, wait. I'm not for allowed everybody to else. answer. No, you're. That, no, you're even when I did, I want to go on the record saying that I did know that because I am a little bit nervous that now the next one's going to be harder. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, so the next one. Born in Decatur, Alabama, she was the first African American woman in space aboard the space shuttle Endeavor in 1992. In addition to being a NASA astronaut, she's also a physician and engineer. She has nine honorary doctorates and um, appeared in an episode of Star Trek The Next Generation. <laughs> Any I hands here? just was hearing her on a podcast about Star Trek because of how revolutionary it was having an African-American woman on the bridge in the original series. Mm, so like, she wasn't on the original series. No, I know is, that. Oh, okay. But there was, they had <laughs> mm-hmm. an African-American woman on the original series, yeah. which was really revolutionary, and that helped to right. um, inspire her in her becoming an astronaut, but I can't remember her name. Yeah, Star Trek is really important in the history of science, <laughs> right? Can you confirm yes, that, Emily? that's okay. absolutely a fact, yeah. Does anybody want to jump in? Mae Jemison. Mm. Okay, last one. He's the director of the Hayden Planetarium in New York City and one of the most widely recognized scientists of our day. Not only is he an astrophysicist, but he is also, more importantly, a podcast host (laughs) and recently resurrected Carl Sagan's popular TV show, Cosmos. Who is Neil deGrasse Tyson, who I have have blocked on Twitter due to his rampant negativity. He's so negative. He's also... He can be negative. Yeah. He's not the greatest historian. (gasps) Is he a historian? No, no, he's not. But he talks a lot about history. Uh, Is he inaccurate a lot of the time? Uh, we, got some major, we got some major beef with Neil deGrasse Tyson I, we need to talk about. I, I do. Okay. In fact, I tell people all the time that I'm in a feud with Neil deGrasse Tyson that he does not know about. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay, well, that's the end of our show. Thank you so much for joining me, um, Ben and Emily and Carrie. Thank you so Thank much you, for having us. Yeah, it's been great. Okay, great. Have a good one. <laughs> You just listened to Lab Talk with Laura on 91.1 FM, WMUA Amherst. Our guests today were Ben Padilla and Dr. Emily Redman of UMass Amherst, and our co-host was Carrie Glauner. Thank you so much for listening. Stick around for WMUA news coming right up.